Boy, I never get tired of singing those truths. I was just reminded this week how grateful I am for this church, which means how grateful I am for you. What a community that God's brought together. I know it's summertime. A lot of us are traveling, uh, maybe vacations or different things like that. So just want to consider this question. Uh, when you're packing and preparing for a trip, how many in this room would consider yourself to be a light packer? Let's see a raise of hand. Light packers in the room? There's a few. So, okay, that means that the rest of you would consider yourself to be <laughs> prepared. We're prepared. Yeah, I see how it is. I did hear overpacking too, which I mean, a little of both. I, I tend to be one of the light, lighter packers and maybe a bit more unprepared. Uh, I remember one trip where I tried to pack everything I was going to take into my pillowcase so I could just take my pillow. Great idea, huh? No, I, I, I regretted so many things that I did not bring along that week, which is so good that I married my wife because she is prepared. She's very prepared, and that's what I need because when we travel, she saves my bacon so much just by what she brings along. But I remember uh, right after we got married, we went on our honeymoon, and then a week later, we, we packed up to go to two weeks of summer camp with a bunch of teenagers. And so she knew what she was getting into coming into this marriage, and so she prepared. So we packed up, and we got ready, and we were heading uh, out to this camp, and I was putting my bag into the car, and then I was putting her bags into the car and preparing. And we get there, and I'm unloading it into our room. And uh, I put my bag in, I go back, I'm starting to put her bags, and I get one particular bag. And I'm starting to lift it up and pull it to kind of get it out. And I mean, we're newly married, so she has to know. She married a strong man. I wasn't as big as I am now, um, back then. But so I kind of pulled it up and pulling it down, and I couldn't drop it. And I was feeling a little awkward, and so I just said, what, what do you got in here, weights? And then she was quiet and kind of a little awkwardly silent and just smiled and kind of nervously laughed. And so I just went along with it, pulled it in the room, and then I had to go to a meeting. So I went into a meeting, and I came back. And after I came back into this room, she had transformed this entire room to look like home, away from home. It was incredible. She had everything set, and it was ready, and we were ready for a couple weeks of camp. I started looking around the room and seeing all the things she had brought that she had prepared for. And I get to one corner of the room, and I look, and I see that she has brought along <laughs> weights for your morning workout. And so I realized I wasn't too crazy. There were weights in that bag. But what I also realized is that, man, I, for that woman, I would carry anything, an overpacked bag, including weights. But why would anybody ever choose to carry burdens in undue weight in their heart and their soul throughout this life? Which brings us to Matthew 18. If you've got a Bible, you can follow along as we go there this morning. I'm going to start in verse 21. Using a phone, I'm going to be reading from the ESV translation this morning. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Now, since we're jumping right into the middle of this chapter, let's get a little context about what's going on here. So this is, 
in the middle of what maybe we could call Jesus' road trip, right? He started up in Galilee and he's traveling down ultimately over to Jerusalem. He's going there to give his life. But he's not traveling alone. He's brought his disciples with him. And all along the way, he continues to teach them and show them about what his kingdom looks like. And actually in chapter 18, there's been a lot of teachable moments. Because right at the very beginning, we find the disciples are arguing with each other about who's the greatest. And as I think about that, I think of the comparisons that are being made, maybe the words that are being spoken. It's real easy to hurt somebody's feelings in those kind of conversations. Not only that, the chapter goes on and it talks about how to deal with somebody that's sinned against you. And so Peter is wrestling through this thought, and it's a good thought to consider as he comes into this. I'm not sure what all of his motivation was going into it, but he puts a good question out there for all of us. So after he asks this, he also throws out an answer. As many as seven times, which doesn't seem much to us. But if you think of the context in the world that they were living in, it was commonly taught by the rabbis that three times was enough. After that four, then it's gone. Maybe go back to Amos and kind of pull up some numbers from that. But they were starting to put limitations on forgiveness. So Peter seems like he's asking a question with some generosity in mind, right? But what we're really going to see later on is he's actually putting limits on this. But for him, he's thinking, uh, as many as seven times? That's, that's more than doubling what the rabbis currently were teaching. So let's see what Jesus says. <clears throat> Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, and I picture all the disciples around him going, oh, whew, like that would have been a lot. But 77 times. Or as your translation may say, or 70 times 7. Which really got me thinking, okay, is it 77 times or is it 70 times 7? Is it 490? What's our number here? Because I need to know the number so I can keep following Jesus, which puts me right in Peter's boat. But let's get into this and figure out what Jesus was doing. Because there's one other spot in Scripture where we find this exact same terminology being used. And it's back in Genesis chapter 4. And there's two brothers there that are coming into this story. One's Cain and one's Abel. One gets jealous and angry and ends up killing his brother. And Cain gets sent away and an entire city starts to form around him. And it's not a place that you would want to be. Because hurt people often go on to hurt people. And this becomes a very difficult spot and God had warned Cain. He said, be careful. Sin is crouching at the door and it will destroy. And so the story goes on and we meet another character. His name is Lamech. He comes down through his family line. And in Genesis chapter 4, verse 19, it says, And Lamech took two wives. This is the guy that introduces polygamy into the story. And then it goes on to say, in verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Ada, Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. Sounds like a super nice guy. And if you're reading this, you notice that the form and the text changes. So it goes from, maybe even in your Bible, the way it's laid out, it goes into this song or this poem that he's writing. Now listen to what he's writing about. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Did you catch it? If Cain gets revenge seven times, then Lamech is going to get revenged 77 times. 
It's actually using some terminology of that day where it's giving this limitless number. It had some symbolism in it. So we could, we could say, it's, he's basically saying, yeah, if I got revenge, I'm going to do it infinity. Infinity times infinity. But yet Jesus comes back and uses the same terminology to say, how often should we forgive? Infinity. Infinity times infinity. Which seems like a ridiculous number. That's kind of hard to grasp. But what Jesus is starting to show us is that forgiveness is ongoing. I can't put limits on my forgiveness. So often people then say, well, forgiveness must be forgetting then. But forgiveness is not forgetting. I think that forgiveness is choosing not to remember. And there's a big difference between the two. I can't force myself to forget something. But when it comes back into my mind, I can choose to not remember it. This is what I mean. Go, uh, if, you, if you want to jot this down, Hebrews 8.12 says this. This is what God says. I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sin no more. It's not that they didn't do it, but something's been paid so that there's not a lingering debt for that. 1 Corinthians 3 goes on to tell us that love keeps no record of wrongs. So what it means is when I'm choosing to forgive, I'm telling them, I'm choosing not to remember. That means I'm not going to bring it up to you again. That means I'm not going to bring it up to others again. That means every time it comes up to myself, I'm not, I'm not going to bring it up to myself again. And when it comes to mind, I'm going to continue to remind myself that I have forgiven that sin. I choose not to remember. I choose not to dwell on it, to continue to keep thinking that I'm owed something through it. So just to give us a picture and to take us deeper into what he's talking about, he goes into a story. And Jesus is a masterful storyteller. Let's check out what he says, verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now for us, we kind of picture this and we try and think of ourselves in a kingdom with a king and and talents and it's kind of hard to understand. So maybe put it in this context. There is a massive company, huge company, and the CEO starts to do an audit of that company and he finds that one of his employees has been embezzling money from the company. And this isn't a small amount, this is a gargantuan amount. And so he brings him in to pay the debt that he's occurred through that embezzling. Now, when we see 10,000 talents, we've got to try and figure out what this is. The NIV says 10,000 bags of gold. It's important to know that a talent is not a a form of money. A talent is a measurement. So it's, it's an accumulation of money. So it would have taken 20 years for an average citizen to accumulate one talent. 20 years. The entire tax levy on all of Palestine at this time was 800 talents all of that. So those of you that are good at math, others have done this too, have tried to figure out, okay, what's the difference? So they would say back in this time, this is like 10 to $12 million, not talking about inflation as well. This is a gargantuan amount. I think I would read it this way. And one was brought into him who owed him a gazillion dollars. You get in the picture? It's a ridiculous number. Verse 25, and since he could not pay, obviously, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children, all that he had, and payments to be made. 
This seems a little bit cruel when we hear this and we think of this, but I mean, how many of us have went and purchased an education and then got out of that and we were a bit indebted to that in education and working for them until we got that debt paid off so we could be freed of that debt? I think we could understand a little bit of that with the college experience that we experience here. This was a common practice in that day, that they would go and they would work off that debt. But this is a huge debt. So in verse 26, the servant fell to his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Did, did, he, <laughs> did he just say everything? Does he remember how much he owes? I start to see a picture of this guy's heart, realizing that he doesn't get it. There's arrogance inside him, thinking that somehow he can still take care of this problem. There's some kind of heart in here that's not grasping the realness of the situation, the depth of what's happening here. We go on to verse 27. It says this, And out of pity for him, the master had of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. I think rather than saying pity, a better word would be compassion. The master saw him and had compassion. Remember what Jesus was telling us, that forgiveness has to be ongoing. And oftentimes, that's not just for new offenses that people continue to do to us. Oftentimes, it's that same thing that comes back into my mind, but I'm choosing not to remember it. C.S. Lewis wrote beautifully about this when he said, we find that the work of forgiveness has to be done over and over again. We forgive, we mortify our resentment, and a week later, some chain of events carries us back to that original offense, and we discover the old resentment blazing away as if nothing had been done about it at all. We need to forgive our brother 70 times 7, not only 490 offenses, but also for one offense. The forgiveness is ongoing. This is a huge debt. Jesus asks a lot, but it's in this verse, in verse 27, that we start to define what forgiveness is. Because forgiveness comes from a Greek word that's pronounced aphiomi. Try it with me. Aphiomi. Well done. Well done. I like it because it reminds me of a freer me. And it literally means an action that causes separation. It's a detachment. It's to separate myself from something. It's to cancel a debt. I think of going out and fishing, and I've lured and caught a fish, and I'm having it there, and I've got a decision to make. Either I'm going to put it on the chopping block and fillet it, or I'm going to put it back in the water and let it separate, let it go. This has put space in between me and someone else. It was actually to send away a legal term, but not in the sense of a hardness of heart. It was in a debt capacity. So that's what he does here. He releases him, and he forgives him. Because forgiveness is me letting go of my right to hurt you for hurting me. And that's not easy to do. That is so tough. What I'm not saying is that you ignore the sin or that the sin has no consequences. I'm not saying that you just lay down in your doormat and you let people continue to just walk all over you. I'm not saying if you're in an abusive situation that you just take that abuse. What I'm saying is you need to get out of that into a safe place so you can do the hard work of forgiveness because the hard work of forgiveness is heart work. 
And that's the most difficult kind. So he forgives him the debt, everything. He releases him from it. Verse 28, but. Now this could have been a beautiful story. This guy could have understood everything and went out to change the whole kingdom because of what he had experienced. What happens? But when that same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. So this guy was wronged too. He was carrying a hurt. He had, he had been hurt. He was owed something. And not something insignificant. NIV says a hundred silver coins. It would have taken a hundred days wages to accumulate something like that for the common citizen. We maybe picture this to be like three or four thousand dollars. So this is not insignificant, but this is insignificant compared to what he has just been forgiven. And what's he do? And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Have patience with me and I will pay you. Does that sound familiar? Just back up in 26, we heard him ask the exact same thing. Only his was filled with a little bit of arrogance and a lack of understanding of the debt, but this guy is intending to do this. Verse 30, but he refused and he went and he put him into prison until he should pay back the debt. Your translation may say he was unwilling. I think this is important to understand. We often think of forgiveness as an emotion, as a feeling. And while dealing with the heart in Scripture does have feeling and emotion, it's not that alone. It's, it's also a will and an intellect. It's a choice. And forgiveness is not just our emotions. It's a choice. It's part of our will. Corey Tenboom understood this as she lived throughout her life. If you don't know who that is, pick up a book and read her story. It's incredible. She said, forgiveness is an act of the will and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Although I may feel something, I can still choose to forgive in that moment. It's showing us that the problem that he's dealing with here is not a money problem, it's a heart problem. He goes on, you see how his punishment was different? Rather than having them work off the debt, he puts them in prison. In essence, he's telling them, I'm putting you into a place where you will never be able to pay back the debt that you owe me. I am forcing you to be in that debt for a lifelong peace. And it's not like we would do this, right? We often think of it in terms of forgiveness and reconciliation. We think, well, if they don't come to the table, I can't forgive them. But we have to understand that forgiveness always just takes one person. Reconciliation always takes two. When I had a sin debt, Jesus saw my debt and he came down and he died for that for me. And he offers freely forgiveness in life with him. But I have to come to the table and acknowledge the debt I owe and accept that free forgiveness for our relationship to be reconciled. You may have a relationship that you are longing to be restored. Or maybe you have a relationship that you're hurting from. But there's nothing you can do to force the will of that person to come to the table. There's nothing you can do. It's a heart issue. But with forgiveness, you can because it's all up to you. It's your decision to make. 
And it's a hard decision to make. When I'm thinking of this story, at first I read it and I'm thinking, man, I, I put myself in the king category. Yeah, I'm the guy that just forgives a lot. But as I read through it, I realize that God is the king in this story. That I am the servant. I'm the debtor. And I started having to wrestle with that and realize, boy, do I ever put people in prison? This summer, I was able to go take a trip a few months back. As I was preparing for my trip, it was out to Colorado, and I wanted to do some studying, wanted to review kind of some journals, wanted to read. And so I I got a little cabin out there, and I was spending some time doing that. And I decided one day, I'd done some hiking, but this day I wanted to just fill up my bag, go out in the mountain, and just read. So I started packing it up with stuff. And I brought this Bible. It was like the Cadillac of Bibles. It was like this thick. Huge study notes, maps, everything in it. thought, okay, I'll bring that. I stuck it in. I had a bunch of journals and other books, and I wasn't sure what I was going to feel like reading, so I just kept loading this bag up. Had some snacks in there, a bunch of water. Packed it up into a backpack, put it in my car, and headed out. I found this spot where I decided I was going to probably find a great place to go and to read. So I parked my car, and I get this backpack out. And I start walking. And as I'm walking, I continue to look and try and find a spot that I can sit and park and pull out all this stuff out of my backpack that I'm carrying. And I walk a while, and I'm not seeing anything. And I keep walking. And then I decided I saw a sign for a waterfall. I thought, well, that might be a great place to go, sit and read. And so an hour later, <laughs> I'm continuing to walk with this thing to this waterfall. My back's starting to hurt a little bit. I'm kind of frustrated because I'm walking so far. But I finally get to this. And it's beautiful. It's incredible. I was really excited. I actually put my backpack down and was ready to celebrate a little bit from this journey. And uh, I captured a little bit of it. So just to give you a picture, here, here's the waterfall. Kind of quiet, beautiful, and uh, a great spot. I was a little excited just to actually reach this place. Yeah. So I sit there for a while, but it's kind of noisy. And I'm thinking, well, I'll go up a little bit more and find a little quieter spot away from the waterfall. So I eat some of the snacks, grab my backpack, and head back up this mountain. Now, as I'm walking, water's starting to flow down this trail because of snow melt. I start getting into snow where I'm post hole down into the stuff. And as I continue to walk longer and longer, a couple hours are going by, I start to stop thinking about the busy things that are occupying my mind, what I have to do, the next thing. And I start to get to that heart spot where I'm evaluating what's going on in my heart. And God and I continue to have conversations. It was almost as if the water in my heart started to get stirred up and these things that had settled to the bottom started rising up. I started thinking about some of the situations that I was frustrated by. Some of the places maybe where I felt injustice in a relationship. And it started to trickle up. And you know what that does to you? You start to feel that angst in your soul and the kind of that frustration. And as I'm experiencing that, I'm kind of getting a little more agitated and a little more frustrated. And now I'm just determined... I'm going to keep going because there's a lake on the top of this mountain. I'm going to go up there, and I'm envisioning it's going to be this beautiful grass area. There's going to be flowers coming up and the water, and I'm going to sit down. I'm going to finally read. So I get up to the top of this lake several hours later, and I pull up, and this is what the lake looks like. Frozen over. Yeah, that's me in the weird beard stage, but frozen over, ice, and I'm thinking, I'm not sitting in a snowbank to read. So I go find this little spot where the lake is melting off and there's a log and I sit down and I start to talk to God. It was almost as if he was saying, yeah, 
You shouldn't be carrying all this weight, which was very real to me at this point. But not just on your back and your heart. Why are you doing this? You're putting yourself in prison. For what? Do you realize how much I have forgiven you and yet you think you can withhold forgiveness to someone else? You think you can put some kind of limit on what they can do? And it was so brilliant and clear to me that I thought, man, as a symbol of it, I wanted to just leave my backpack there because it would have been a lot easier to come down the mountain. But there were great books and I didn't want to lose them. So instead, I did business with God, and I prayed with them, and then I grabbed this backpack up and walked back down this mountain, carrying this weight again. I wonder how, much, how many of us would say, yeah, there's things that I carry. Maybe for years we've been toting this stuff around. Maybe for us it's fresh this week. But we continue to carry this when God has a different thing in mind. So what happens in our story? Verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servants as I had mercy on you. Or your translation may say, in the same way that I had mercy on you. God and his mercy and forgiveness are incredible. Psalms 103, verse 3 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And then it goes on to say, Who forgives all your iniquity. That's a ridiculous number. Ephesians 4.32, he goes on to give us the standard for forgiveness. Forgiving each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Because forgiven people forgive people. We could follow the way of Lamech, and we could be hurt people that hurt people, but God's kingdom flips it upside down. So then we go on to verse 34, and in his anger he delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. It's almost as if he's had a choice and he's chosen to put himself in prison. And there is no prison worse than the prison of an unforgiving heart. And this blows my mind. He's had the chance where he could have afia me. He could have forgiven. He could have canceled the debt. He could have released it. But instead, he's choosing to hang on to it. For us, we have the chance where we can hang on to this thing and let it take hold of us, or we can set them free. And in doing that, become free ourselves. The question that we wrestle with is, which one would I want to do? And I think we always have to go back to the understanding and the experience of what God has done for us, because then we get to the end of our parable. And sometimes... In the parable, we'd get to the end, and Jesus is very clear. Other times, he weren't quite sure, and he'd go back to his disciples, and he would explain other things. Here, he gives it to us very clearly. Verse 35 says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Man, this was hard. When I read that verse, I wrestled with it. Because after I came down from the mountain, I, I went to this passage and I started thinking, 
uh, I want to grow in this area. And, and I saw that and I thought, boy, that, that's a huge standard. Now, what this verse is not saying is that somehow you pay for your forgiveness. It's somehow you earn it. That's clear all throughout scripture. That that gift of forgiveness to you and I, it comes by, through grace by faith alone. There's nothing you can do to earn that. You just freely accept it. But what we do have to realize when we look through this is that salvation comes from repentance. And repentance comes through acknowledgement of my sin. Acknowledgement of my sin comes through the reality of, of receiving God's forgiveness, understanding the depth of that forgiveness. And that brings a changed heart. And a changed heart brings a changed life. So one of the ways you're going to be able to see those followers of Jesus is they're going to be people that are freely and fully able to, to forgive. Not because they can do it in their own strength, but because of what he's done for them, what he can do through them if they choose to follow. It's a big choice. December 20th, 1974, Chris Carrier was stepping off a bus. He was in Coral Gables, uh, Florida, and he had just finished the last day of school. He's 10 years old. And he's walking back to his house, and a guy comes up to him and introduces himself as Chuck. And he tells him that his, he's preparing and decorating for a holiday party for his dad, and he asks him to come help. And Chris assumes that this guy knows his dad and that it's okay, and so he gets in the car with him. He starts to drive away. What he doesn't know is that this guy's name is not Chuck. It's David McAllister. And that six months earlier, he's been fired from giving care to his great uncle because of his alcohol. And he's angry. So he continues to drive north from Miami in his car, and he pulls over on the side of the road, and he goes to the back trunk of the car, and he pulls out an ice pick. He begins to viciously attack Chris, starting in the back and his back and neck, and then turn him over in his chest. Chris had grown up in the church, and he said he recalled having remembered what Jesus said on the cross, and for some reason he just said, God, forgive him. He doesn't know what he's doing. And I don't know why David stopped in that moment, but he did. And he got back in the car, and he started driving again, and he told Chris what his next plans were. Chris realized there was nothing he could do. He's 10 years old. And David had just told him that he was going to drive him over to the Everglades and drop him off and call his dad and tell him where he was so that he could pick him up. So they do just that. They drive to the Everglades, park the car, and go out about 20 or 30 feet by some bushes. As Chris walks over there with him, David turns around to walk back, and Chris sees he's got a gun, and he shoots Chris. And then he walks or drives away. Chris lays unconscious for six days. The bullet shot had went through his temple and exited out his right temple, causing him to be blind in his left eye for the rest of his life. But somehow, remarkably, he wakes up six days later. He thinks he's still waiting for his dad, so he goes to the side of the road and sits there until somebody drives along in a truck. Now, you can imagine his parents have been terrified this whole time. They're looking. They're asking parents, teachers, everybody they can. They put a $10,000 reward out trying to find him. Well, this guy in his truck sees this 10-year-old boy with black eyes and a bloody shirt and just around the holiday season thinks this is not okay picks him up. Eventually, he gets the police into the hospital, and they're astounded at the way that he uh, is still alive after this attack. 
Well, Chris goes on to share with the detectives a description of the guy that had done this to him, not knowing who he was before. Other families saw this and they thought, that's David McAllister. And so they bring David in and with a lineup, they ask Chris to identify him. And for whatever reason, he doesn't know why, but he said, I wasn't able to, to pick him out of the lineup. So David walks away and having no other evidence, walks out scot-free from this attack. The impact of this attack leaves Chris for the next three years just scared. He said he'd wake up terrified and go uh, into his parents' room and just lay at the, the foot of the bed. And then through his life, he started taking Bible studies and in those Bible studies, realizing that God was sovereign in control. He could trust him. He started realizing that his story could be one that he could share about God and his forgiveness. And so he did just that. He continued that for years and years and years and years. Till one day he gets a call that David is 77 years old, laying in a nursing home bed, dying at that moment. He's blind from glaucoma. He has no friends and family around him. And when the detectives had heard that, when they had been tipped off, since they'd never been able to close the case, they went and tried one more time. And David had acknowledged that he had dropped Chris off in the Everglades, and that's all they needed to close the case. But for Chris, there was not going to be any other justice done beyond that point. So they asked him if he would like to go talk to him, and Chris said, yes. So he and his pastor and a reporter went to this nursing home. Now just imagine walking into the room 22 years later and seeing the man that had tried to kill you. Rightfully so, he said it was awkward in those first initial meetings, or the first initial conversations. And at first he denied it again. But then the pastor gently asked him more questions and he continued to share more and more. Chris said they talked for a while. And after, when he was leaving, he told David to sleep well. And David said, finally, I will. But the story doesn't end there. It's incredible what Chris goes on to do. And this is only a story that can come through incredible forgiveness that God offers. In his own words, he said, I visited often, introducing him to my wife and two girls, offering him hope and some semblance of family in the days before his death, less than a month later. I shared the gospel with him, and he trusted in Christ. He was always glad when I came by. I believe that our friendship eased his loneliness and was a great relief to him after 22 years of regrets. He told reporters from CNN, I was the best friend he had ever had. And while many people can't understand how I could forgive David McAllister, from my point of view, I couldn't not forgive him. If I'd chosen to hate him all these years or spend my life looking for revenge, then I wouldn't be the man that I am today. The man that my wife and my children love. The man that God has helped me to be. So I wonder if you examine your heart, are you carrying a weight of debt? What's your limit? Chris decided that he wasn't going to be like Lamech. And if there's anybody that has an excuse not to offer forgiveness, I think it's the guy that got tried they, to the person that tried to kill him. But yet he flips it around and he understands the ridiculous forgiveness that God has given him. And instead he grants that and it turns into a world changing experience. Seen broadly. As we close out in this time together, 
We're going to sing a song. And what I would ask for you to do is to wrestle in your heart. If there is any burdens that you are continuing to carry, that you need to fear me. You need to release. You need to let go. Absolutely, you'll need Jesus' strength to do this, but it's going to be your choice. Now, some of us may need to leave this room and go ask others for forgiveness. But to forgive, we can do that right here where we sit. We can simply tell God that we have chosen to forgive. So Jesus, would you continue to help us to understand the depth of your full forgiveness in our life? God, will we be able to fathom and understand and comprehend the way that you have freed us from a debt that we could not pay so that we could go on to forgive others? God, as we sit in this moment right now and we wrestle through this, would you give us the strength and courage to choose to follow you, to choose to forgive? Realizing it's not just a one-time thing. This will be ongoing. This will be something we'll continue to need to wrestle with. But God, allow us to start here. Start to experience what it means to live freely and lightly following you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.